start. Everyone's in, aren't they? Welcome back, Larry. Let's have you back. Let's back with with us again. And uh, Jason, always a pleasure to have you as well. Um, hope you feel welcome. Just before we start, and we're going to finish off our Advent series in John. This one, just a couple of quick notices. So I mentioned uh, last couple of weeks, so on Christmas Eve, Cornerstone Church Liverpool having a Christmas Eve service at four o'clock. So everyone's welcome to that. So if you wanted to go somewhere on uh, Christmas Eve, uh, we won't be having a Christmas Day service. So it's a good opportunity just to gather together. So that's four o'clock. Um, up the road at Cornerstone Church, Liverpool. Um, and then just two notices kind of looking forward to January. And, and I hate to do this because we haven't even had Christmas yet. It feels like we just need to celebrate Christmas. But um, these are important things just to look ahead. So we're starting a new sermon series from next week, actually, because next week's the 29th. Um, so <laughs> by next week, Jesus will have come. So we kind of move on to, on to other things. But we're starting a series, a four-week series called Zeal which Johnny will be very excited about. Um, and it's going to be looking at, so next week we're going to look at God as a God who is zealous. And then three weeks following that, what it looks like for us to be a people who are zealous. So different kind of aspects of, of what we're called to be zealous about. Um, and that's going to be a really, a really just encouraging and exciting way for us to start the year, which if, if kind of you've been around the last few months and you've been part of any of the conversations, um, next year is going to be a big kind of step forward for us in terms of our reach into the, into the community and really stepping into the things that we feel God has got in front of us. Um, through that series, kind of the second weekend to January, so starting the 6th of January through to the 12th, we're going to have our week of prayer. We've done this before, but this is going to be um, different to the weeks that we've had before in that it is going to, there's going to be more stuff going on, just so many more opportunities for us to gather together <laughs> to pray. So there'll be morning prayer and evening prayer through each of those um, seven days. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a day and a night of 24-hour prayer as well from the Friday through to the, the Saturday. Uh, we're going to pray and fast as well from the Saturday through to the Sunday. And we're going to uh, finish off the week on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, uh, breaking our fast for those who want to fast and praying and praising so it'd be great the reason i put that up there is just particularly that weekend if you can try as best as you can to to keep um, some of those times free it'd be really great if as many of us as possible can can join together in starting the year with prayer because we cannot do the things that god has got set in front of us without his help we desperately um, need him so that's going to be a really exciting week for us a great way for us to start the year as well just kind of looking ahead as well so this is just for people who who maybe want to get ahead of the game after that sermon series we're going to spend a couple of months in the book of esther so if you're maybe thinking of christmas presents or um, last minute stocking fillers and you want to get a commentary or just start reading around esther um you could do that it's going to be i'm really really excited for that an incredible book um, god's providence protection and his hand on his people through what looks like the most um, desperate of times right back to christmas let's get back in the zone um let me start uh, with praying and then we'll get going lord jesus we thank you how already this morning we've been reminded that you are our king thank you that you are a king who rules with righteousness with peace with love 
We thank you that you are ruling and reigning, have always been really ruling and reigning, and will forevermore rule and reign. And we thank you that you've called us into your kingdom. For those of us who are yours, we thank you that you've given us uh, an eternal inheritance that is waiting for us, but you've given us a specific call here and now as your disciples to walk in obedience, to listen to your word. And so help us to do that now as we sit under the authority of your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide us into truth, that you would reveal the Son to us as we just study these last few verses in this series. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified above everything else this morning, that the eyes of our heart would be, would be directed towards who you are. So help us, we pray. It's in your name that we ask. Amen. I wonder what the best gift, best Christmas gift is that you've ever got. There's, a, there's kind of a few of us in number. We've got a little bit of a time, so we might go a little bit interactive and maybe ask you if you can think, what is the best Christmas gift that you've ever got? And I'm just going to pick on people. Jonathan, go on. Oh, oh, there we go. How about 20, no, when, 23? Yeah, you are? When you were a child, sorry. I think like in recent, in recent years. Star Wars stuff, very nice. Helen, any ideas? No? Okay, what are you, Mark? These days, Star Wars socks. Star Wars? Yes. Yes. Team, I, I am getting a heated blanket to wear when I'm on the computer. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Heated blanket. Ella, any ideas? Dinosaur bed sheets. Dinosaur bed My goodness, this room is like the maturity level of this room. Is like... <laughs> Elizabeth? Um, Maybe Dennis the Donkey is the most Dennis the Donkey. That was off me, wasn't it? Yeah. A donkey. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Well, interestingly, so there's a bit of a theme there with some, some of the presents in that I think, and this is maybe out, out for, um, you can contest this if you want, but I think probably the best presents that we get are ones that we can actually use. Yeah. So, so socks, blankets, I don't know what you do with a donkey, but, but maybe kind of these are things that you can use and they have some actual practical use. And if anyone was going to buy me a, a Christmas present, and Elizabeth's slowly learning this as the years go by, I hate that. You know, just the little bits that you get, that you'll, you'll open the box and you'll have a little play with it and then you'll never use it again. Please don't ever buy me like stuff like that. Get me stuff that I can use. So my favourite um, Christmas present, see if you can guess what it is. It's actually a chainsaw. So two years ago, I, uh, some of you saw it on Wednesday night. Actually, my dad was returning the chainsaw. And you might think, a terrace road in Egbeth, what on earth are you going to do with a chainsaw? But it gets used quite a lot. I love the chainsaw, and it's uh, hands down probably my favourite present of all time. Chainsaw and socks are probably up there. And they are both, for me, practical um, presents that, that I can use, that are going to get... Um, brought out every day or every few months if it's the chainsaw but the thing is with them and I learned this recently I had the chainsaw out it was down at my dad's chopping down a tree in his allotment it grows tired and I had to change the the teeth on it I had to replace the teeth and hopefully most of us will know that you have to replace your socks as well <laughs> Jonathan every every few months because because uh, they get holes in them and uh, and they wear out it's interesting, I picked up on a Twitter conversation just a few days ago. It was a, 
a Radio 1 DJ just put a tweet out and he's not a Christian but he asked all his Twitter followers does anyone still uh, celebrate Christmas as a religious festival or has it become totally commercialised so interesting looking through the comments probably probably the majority of people were saying it has nothing to do with religion that we just have a time off as a holiday or just time with friends and family but there were quite a few people who were coming on saying yes the the reason for this season is jesus it's interesting like the church almost assumes this position that we've been pushed to the margins of society and in a lot of ways we have but there's still a real sense that that for thousands of years this time these kind of this week or two weeks that we we spend uh, looking at jesus and the four weeks that we spend looking at advent for thousands of years there's been one constant and that constant has been jesus and even now, as we are being pushed to the margins, margins, it still seems even people who aren't Christians know and would profess that, that Jesus is the reason for the season. That in fact, Christmas is not Christmas unless there is some sort of religiosity to it, even if it's forced. And the interesting thing is, as we think of gifts and we think of kind of nice things that we get around Christmas... The reason we celebrate what we celebrate at this time of year is because Jesus came to give us a gift. He came to give humanity a gift. And it was exactly the thing that we needed. And this gift that he came to bring would never wear out. It would never run out. It would never need replacing. And this might kind of sound cliche, but kind of see this through because the reality is, and we can get kind of just so bedazzled with all the tinsel and the lights, but the reality is if Jesus did not come, Without this gift, without Jesus coming with this gift, then every single one of us would experience eternal death, suffering and punishment. If you're not a believer here this morning, then the relentless kind of pursuit of of life and joy and peace, the guilt that you feel, the shame that you feel, the dissatisfaction that you feel with just even being alive, they are all a symptom that you have not received this gift. They are a symptom that you have been separated from God. And the result of your separation is death. This time of year, Christians celebrate that Jesus comes with a remedy. He provides a way out from eternal judgment, punishment and death. And without that gift, you have no hope. Three quick things we're going to see just in the last portion of John's gospel that we're going to read this morning. We're going to see that that as Jesus comes and gives this gift, he comes as a king who is glorious. He comes as a king who is complete and he comes as a king who is full of grace and truth. So let's read. It's John chapter 1, which is page 886. John chapter 1, verse 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
Jesus is the King of glory who brings grace and truth. The last kind of three weeks before this, we've been looking at Jesus coming as a king. And it's interesting, the thing that we see with Jesus coming as a king, Jesus, who we've already seen, is the eternal God, who is a king who brings light and life. The interesting thing, and especially we see this at this time of year, is that, is that he is not hidden. He isn't a king who kind of sits above and, and, and overall and just kind of maybe gives us a holy a, a writing to abide by. This, this king, this Jesus, who is God, is not hidden. And that is one of the things that marks him out from every other religion. So you look at the kind of Greek and the Roman gods that are floating around at the time when John the Apostle wrote this book. None of their gods could have that claim. None of them could say that they are a real God who has come to live amongst their people. They were gods who were kind of embodied in statues and in writings and in folklore. And it's the same today in modern religions, in Islam, in Hinduism, even in kind of the higher powers that people will submit to in New Age spirituality. None of them are able to say that their king, that their God has come and lived amongst them and has not hidden themselves, but is there. Even in Islam, the prophet Muhammad never got to see his God. But our God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not keep himself hidden, but came and lived amongst us. Through Jesus' incarnation, we have seen God. And what we've seen is that he is an eternal God. He is a God of life. He is a God of light. And now we see he is a God of glory, grace, and truth. Look at verse 14 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Apostle, who writes this letter, wants us to know that when... When, when we see God, when we see Jesus who is God, we see that he is glorious. Do you see that? We have seen his glory. Now, we don't, we don't describe anyone else in those terms. We don't kind of, do, you know, you might do something good and you might do something that is, is kind of stand out re- really impressive, but we won't kind of call you glory and call you glorious. It's interesting, last night, Liverpool won the World Club Cup. A lot of Liverpool fans are kind of bouncing around saying they are the best team in the world and, and they probably are. And you listen to some of the, the, the things that they're saying about the, the football team at the moment. These are kind of the glory years of Liverpool. They are. But could we say that two years ago or three years ago? No. But there is something about God that John the Baptist has shown us here that he is glorious. He is always glorious. He is glorious now and he always will be glorious. Why can he say that about Jesus? Because Jesus is God. And God is glorious. And John the Baptist knows this. John the Baptist who features through chapter 1 knows this. Look what he says in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out this. It was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. John the Baptist knows his place. When he is confronted with the glory of God, John the Baptist knows his place. And he says, even though I was born before Jesus, he is greater than me. We see it again in chapter 3. What does he say? We pray this every Sunday morning. What does he say in chapter 3? That Jesus must increase and John must decrease. John the Baptist knows that God is great and he is glorious. And he ranks before him because he is God. When John sees Jesus, he sees the glory of God. And actually, you see this all the way through Scripture. When God shows up in the Old Testament, how is he manifest? His glory. 
Isaiah chapter 6, the, the prophet Isaiah has, has a prophecy, has a, has a vision of what God is like. And, and it's almost like he can't describe in the, the room, the temple that he is found in. It's just overwhelmed with God's glory. And Isaiah is overcome by it. You look at Exodus chapter 3, Moses and the burning bush. Most of us will know that story. Moses kind of approaches this burning bush and we know that God is, is in, in the flames there and, and he has to take off his shoes because he is on holy ground. And he has to cover his face. He cannot look on God because he is so glorious. Encounter after encounter you see through the Old Testament that when God shows up, his glory shows up and the reaction of his people is they have to cover themselves. You see that in the tabernacle. You see that when God shows up in the, monk, in, in the midst of his people. They have to kind of surround God's presence so that, so that someone doesn't come into direct contact with it. And his glory is put on display. His people have to cover themselves and shield themselves from it. And this is significant. All the way from the start of the Bible, you see that God desires to be with his people. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see that God is literally walking with his people. He's there in the midst of Adam and Eve. They don't have to cover their faces. But then in Genesis chapter 3, you see that sin shatters it all. And sin means that the, the, that the glory of God is somehow veiled, that they cannot be in direct contact with the glory of God, and so they are placed outside of the garden, taken outside of the presence of God. And that is what happens book after book in the Old Testament. God keeps himself separate from his people. But then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and I'm going to read the, the way that the message interprets this verse because it, I love the way that it sounds. It says this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. For thousands of years, God's presence has been distant from his people. For thousands of years, his glory has been too powerful, too bright to be in the midst of his people. And now what you see, Jesus, who is God, puts on flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood. What's going on here? Something has shifted. We're going to see what that is in a minute. But, but what I want us to see here, just as we look at this first point, is this. That God has come. And when we see him come, we see his glory. And the right response for humanity when we see God and his glory is this. Humility. Do you see that in John the Baptist? John doesn't kind of see the glory of God and then, and then assume that he is someone great. No, he says, God, you, you come first. The right response to the glory of God is humility. Uh, this week, uh, Ruthie and Micah had their school play. And some of you had told you this um, uh, on, on Thursday when, when we saw Mark and Julie. It was a lovely, lovely play. And the kids sang beautifully. It was kind of angelic. Um, choruses and the, their acting was incredible and then Ruthie and two of her friends stepped up to do a recorder solo of Silent Night now if you imagine giving three five-year-olds recorders without much practice uh, seven-year-olds I beg your pardon three seven-year-olds recorders without much practice and asking them to play Silent Night just picture in your mind kind of what that would sound like and that is exactly what it sounded like on Thursday morning was horrific every kind of bump note that they could find they found those bump notes now don't get me wrong as parents it sounded amazing to us and it always would do they could do anything and it would sound great but the reality is every parent was kind of 
biting, biting their hands, trying not to laugh because it was that bad. But here's the best bit on the way home. I'm chatting to others, uh, Ruthie and Micah. You know, how did the play go? What was your favourite part of the play? And for Ruthie, it was the recorder solo. Like, oh, really? How did you think it was? Really, really good. So in her mind, she has like nailed this recorder solo. But the reality is what we heard in our ears wasn't quite the same. Now, if you stood Ruthie next to someone who could actually play the recorder, she would soon see that actually she can't play the recorder. And actually it sounded pretty, pretty awful. In the presence of glory, we see who we actually are. And actually in the presence of the glory of God, we see that we are pretty much nothing and nobodies. But that is a good thing. Seeing the glory of God means that we can stop playing God and assume that we rank before him and that we are somehow powerful enough to to lead our lives and and do great things without him. And that isn't the fact at all. God is glorious more than we can imagine. Christian vision of glory would truly change how we worship, how we serve one another. A Christian vision of glory would change how we sin, and how we approach even the notion of sin. Seeing the glory of God means that we should be soaked in humility because he is glorious. Next we see he is complete. We're going to see in a moment what he is complete um, of. But, but the Apostle John wants us to see, and he says it a couple of times just in these few verses, that God, that Jesus who comes, God incarnate, is complete. You see, in verse 14, you see, uh, the, world came, uh, the word came and dwelt amongst us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then down in verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received. John has shown us that Jesus is complete. That's what that word means, full fullness. It's complete. What he has shown us is that there is no hint of error in this Jesus who comes and lives amongst them. It isn't that Jesus has to kind of grow and and learn and mature into holiness and righteousness. No, he is completely righteous. In all of his word and all of his deed, he is complete. In verse 17, John alludes to the Old Testament law. And isn't that as Jesus comes that he stands opposed or stands against the law? In fact, Jesus comes and he fulfills the law in all of his character, in all of his life. It is all in complete accord with his own law, which demands perfection. That's why the law was so hard for God's people to keep, because it demanded perfection. Jesus comes and he lives in complete accord with the law. He is perfect. And why is that important? Why is it important that that John shows us that he is full, that he is complete? There's lots of reasons, but I think specifically it's, it's kind of pulled out here because if he is complete, it means that we can trust him. If he is kind of the, the completeness of perfection and righteousness, it means that we can trust who he is. It means that whatever he claims to be, whatever he claims to do, whatever he comes and says next, that we can trust him. Now, trust has been kind of banded around a lot in the last few weeks. You think of, of um, uh, Larry, thankfully, you, you've kind of missed out on all of this, but we've been voting in the last few weeks, and trust has been that word that has just been, everyone's been trying to capitalize on it. 
thing about trust is we trust people of good moral character, don't we? They are naturally people who we are happy to believe what they say. If they have good moral character, then we can trust them. Now think of, and this isn't kind of, I'm, I'm not kind of making a political statement here, but think of the two men who were presented to us as the main leaders of the two main political parties for us to vote on. Both of them with shady past, both of them having said and done things which, which isn't with good moral character, which caused their moral character into question. Which actually made, for a, for a lot of us, I'm sure, going to vote uh, last Thursday a really difficult thing. Like a lot of us probably went thinking that maybe we were compromised. Because we're voting for someone based on a, on a really weak element of trust because they haven't shown themselves to be trustworthy. But what if last Thursday there was a candidate who had a spotless record? What if there was one who kind of went up and, and his or her name was on the ballot paper and you could fact check all of the statements they had ever made and all of the results will come back 100% true? Imagine if there was a candidate like that. You could trust that person implicitly. I want to ask us this morning, where are you refu- refusing to believe Jesus? The one who has shown himself to be completely trustworthy. Because in all of his fullness, he has shown himself to be completely perfect, completely righteous. And yet in some areas of our life, we are refusing to believe him. Refusing to follow him. Refusing to believe that he is really as glorious as he says and shows that he is. Refusing even to believe that he is God. Refusing maybe to believe that you are as bad as he says you are. Refusing to believe that that he is the place that you need to go to for help. Refusing to believe that, 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 that because you have been forgiven, you should forgive those around you. Refusing to believe that that sin will not taste better. Refusing to believe that all that he says is true. Because he is complete. Because he comes in fullness. We can believe what he says. And look what he says. Verse 14 again. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Verse 16. It's from his fullness we have all received. (coughs) Grace upon grace. Jesus shows himself to be glorious. John describes him as being complete, as being full. Someone that we can trust when he says what he says and he does what he does. And John has shown us now that he is full of grace and truth. And because he is complete, we can trust that he is. Now we might be used to kind of hearing that, that, that Jesus is a God of grace. That he, he comes and through his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. But, but I want us to see something specifically this, uh, uh, this morning because this is so significant. If you cast that against how God is manifest in the Old Testament. So you think of Isaiah in the throne room of God. You think of, of, of Moses against the burning bush. You think of Israel who are kept kind of on the outside of the tabernacle as God's presence is amongst them. And then Jesus who is God shows up. God incarnate. Now for all of the Old Testament folk when God shows up immediately they are filled with fear. Because they think if God is here he will come in judgment. He will come in, in wrath. He will come to punish us because we are a sinful people. That is the truth of God's way. When we walk in sin, God will punish for our sin. He cannot abide with sin. And the right penalty and punishment for sin is death. For 
thousands of years. That is the reason that God has distanced himself from his people. He has covered his glory. He has shielded his people from the fullness of his glory. Because if he shows up and they are in immediate contact, they will all perish. And yet here is God in the flesh moving into the neighborhood. As God turns up here, the people around should be filled with fear. That he's coming to judge them, that he is coming as their executioner. And yet, what do you see Jesus comments? John doesn't describe Jesus as coming full of, of wrath and, and judgment. He doesn't describe Jesus as coming full, full of impatience and anger to burn against the sin of his people. And, 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 and listen, don't read this and think, well, God's people are doing quite well at this time. No, they weren't. It isn't like God times it to come so that, so that his glory doesn't destroy the people because they're doing so well. No, these people are racked with sin. Yet John doesn't describe Jesus coming like that. What does he describe him coming as? Full of grace and truth. These sinners should be burned up in an instant. How is it that they're not? Is it maybe that Jesus isn't fully God? We know that's not true because of verse 14, John has said the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we've already seen in chapter 1 that that word is God. So it's not that Jesus isn't God. Is it that God had to compromise his truth to come to us? Maybe he could just kind of change a bit of the Old Testament that said that he would judge sin like he would. Well, we know that's not true because it says that Jesus comes full of truth. So how is it that God can come right in the midst of his people and not come in judgment and wrath and burn them up and deal with their sin because he comes full of truth and grace? The truth of God is, is that he hates it. And that is why humanity were driven out of his presence. The truth of God's word is that he has to deal with sin. And the right result of our sin is a penalty and a punishment that leads to death. But also the truth of God is that he is a gracious God. A God who loves his creation too much to allow our sin to divide us from him forever. That word grace literally means favour. As Jesus comes, he comes full of favour from God. Favour in that he makes a way for the divide to be removed. As Jesus comes, he comes and he comes with a perfect life. The fullness of righteousness. And he dies a death for us. To take our sin. To remove the divide. That was the only way that we could be brought into the presence of God again. That is the only way that we could behold his glory without being burnt up again. And there is no death of sin without the death of God himself. Which Jesus Christ comes to do. Three days after his death he rises again in victory over Satan's sin and the grave. And he gives his people the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus abiding in us. So when the divide has been removed, we get to see and we get to experience the glory of God, not with fear anymore, not with the fear of judgment and punishment, but with perfect peace. We're able to come into the presence of God 
and receive the riches of his character. Seeing God as a God who is full of grace and truth means seeing Jesus as the one thing that we cannot do without. Jesus coming is the one gift that we cannot live without. And it isn't a gift that if we don't have, we won't just be disappointed about. If we don't have the gift of grace that Jesus brings, we will be left dead in our sin. If you're an unbeliever, hear these words of Jesus from John (coughs) chapter 8, verse 36. Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. One of the most loving things that you can tell someone is that they are not okay when they are not okay. And that is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying if you are a sinner, which all of us are, you are a slave to sin. You are shackled by your sin. You are not free. But if the Son sets you free, if Jesus says you are free, if Jesus does all that is required to bring you out of your slavery to sin into freedom with him, then you are free indeed. You cannot argue with that because God is a God of truth. Would you see him this morning, if you are not a believer, as the glorious king who is full of grace and truth? And this isn't kind of maybe a physical sight that we would see him with our eyes. It's interesting as you go on through John's gospel, you see that Jesus performs miracles. They see him right in front of their eyes, performing miracles, and yet they don't believe. We said Jesus brings us a spiritual sight. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this. I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's writing to a church in Turkey. I do not uh, cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable, immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Apostle Paul is saying there that when When Jesus gives us his grace, he allows us to see him for who he is. He gives us spiritual sight. The eyes of our heart are enlightened to know him, to see him, and to believe that he is who he says he is. Seeing God is seeing God as a God of glory who is full of grace and truth. And for Christians here this morning, look down at verse 18. Look how John the Apostle concludes this section. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John's saying no one has ever seen God. Up until this point, he has been veiled. He has been kind of shielded. Our our eyes have been covered. And now you do see Once we were blind and now we are able to see him. We were able to see Jesus as our king. We were able to see him as God. We were able to see him as a king who brings light and life and grace 
and truth. And the only way we're able to see him as those things is because he died, rose and gave us life. He has made himself known to us. What a gift that is. How do we respond to that? We can celebrate that amongst ourselves in this room. Or like John the Baptist, we can be people who cry out in the wilderness and declare that Jesus is who he says he is. See that in verse 15? John bore witness about him and cried out. If you're a Christian here this morning, would that be what we do with that gift that we have been given? Not to keep it to ourselves, but to go into the wildernesses of our communities, our cities, our families, and to cry out that he is God, the eternal God. He is our king, a king of light, a king of light, and he is our glorious king who is full of grace.